Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a rocking day. I tell you what, just got back from my men's accountability group. I think we're going to be changing it, though. One of my mentors, somebody that I'm just passionate for, is a man named Michael Hyatt. And Michael happens to be the chairman of Thomas Nelson Publishing. I have studied his career. I've studied what he does and the and the authors that he he actually publishes. And one of the things that that really excites me with what Michael does is that he collaborates across professions. We're reading a book right now, Joel Manby, that was presented by Zondervan. Zondervan also published Craig Grishel's new book, and Michael's got 50 copies he's given away. And as I look at, at his life and what he stands for, I realize, you know, that's that's somebody that I I admire, somebody I want to be like. You know, I'm, I come from a family of authors. Matter of fact, Paige's brand new book, uh, first book written by Harlequin, or published, I should say, by Harlequin Romance, Sweet Lullaby, uh, actually just hit the book. I don't know, I guess this one is in the book club, one of Harlequin's book club, Heart Song Presents. And yes, my mom is listening. Yes, your copy is in my hand. It will be to you, uh, along with a couple other books. But it's it's fun to see. Coming from a publishing family, somebody that writes, it's fun to see somebody like Michael Hyatt who walks his walk. As you, If you ever go to his website and study what he does, uh, you, you realize that his passion is in mentoring. And that is something that I have a, a true passion for. I try to do that in everything that I do. And that's part of what Joel Mamby does, the CEO of HFE, the parent company of Silver Dollar City and other theme parks, and we're in principle number five, trusting, placing confidence in someone. It's interesting, as, I, as I've as i put this study out across the board this month, how many downloads and archive listens we're getting, but the fact that our actual live listens have gone down. And I think it's because people in the business world don't understand both biblical principles and the fact that love, that you can lead with love, you can be outside the box and lead an organization to victory. And a lot of times people don't want to talk about the V word. They don't want to talk about leading to victory, winning something. They don't want to talk about love because it goes it goes across cultural you know, with with 50% of people getting a divorce, with the employment rates down, love, trust, it, it's just not at the top. But I think it's something that we need to look at. Joel starts this off, he says, Jack and Peter Hershen made a decision long ago to trust people until proven wrong. Choosing to trust people is a decision we make, a decision that stems from how we view life. Since trust is at the heart of healthy relationships, businesses and individuals both flourish in an atmosphere of trust. See, we need to trust. Joel's going to share a story about a lady that changed his life. And then I'm going to share a little story about a lady that changed my life, almost at the same age. He opens this chapter up. He says, Miss Prey was my seventh grade teacher at Woodrow Junior High School in Battle Creek, Michigan. 
She was in her 70s back then, but sharp as a tack. Her thick white hair was also perfectly groomed, and her skin was taut across her strong cheekbones. She was intense, a disciplinary who didn't choose to smile much, and I loved her. She was a wonderful instructor. One day, Mom and I attended a parent-teacher conference together with Miss Prey. It wasn't normal for the students to attend, but Miss Prey had requested my presence. I assumed it was going to be a great meeting. Perhaps she would bestow some honor on me. After all, I was a straight-A student with perfect attendance, with a little ego. Miss Prey began the meeting by speaking directly to my mother and explaining that I was an excellent student. She said I grasped concepts quickly and was able to apply them in various situations. She appreciated my focus, attendance, and behavior while she was teaching. Things were going just as I expected, but suddenly my eyes opened wide when she said, Mrs. Mamby, I wanted Joel to be here so that we could discuss an issue together. I would like to speak to him directly, but I wanted you here so you could, could hear my words clearly and help Joel become a better person. Forty years later, thinking about that conversation still opens a pit in my stomach. It came as a complete shock, and I had no clue what she was about to say. Miss Prey looked directly at me. Joel, you are a gifted leader. I've seen many people come through these halls, and you are the very top in your ability to gain people's trust, control of the situation, and rally those around you and get things done. However... You're a very poor listener. Joel, when you don't listen to others, it sends them a very negative and unflattering message. You're telling them they are not important. You're telling them that you are better than they are. You have the natural ability to be a great leader, but you're going to have to fix your listening skills or you will be limited in how far you go. My Miss Prey happened to be when I was seven years old going through one of the worst times in my life. Her name was Mrs. Cunningham, and she was my first grade teacher. When you're going into first grade, you go through a lot of different things in life. I just happened to be going through a lot of different things at home as well as in school. And she was there. She held me accountable. She prayed for me every morning. I remember being brought before her after, for the first time, I'd flip somebody off walking home from school, and they just happened to decide to take me back to school. That's what upperclassmen do whenever they can't do anything else, I guess. But she always loved me. She always treated me different. She always told me about Jesus. The funny thing was, by the time I was in seventh grade and I got my chance to see Mrs. Cunningham again, I found out that she was the aunt of one of my closest friends. And when she saw me in church and I went up and gave her a hug, she said, I knew you'd be somebody great. She passed away long before I ever joined the Marine Corps. But she made a giant impact in my life. Because she believed in a little bitty seven, eight-year-old kid who didn't know his head from a hole in the ground, but she saw something. See, there's always somebody in life that's going to trust you. There's always somebody in life that's going to see you. Now, I had other great teachers, not many, just a handful. 
Coach O'Connor and Coach Word, great guys. I remember my Coach Dunn, who was my algebra teacher. He couldn't get through my head how to do algebra the way the book said to do it, but I always got the answer right. Then I had my senior, my senior high, what do you call him, social science teacher. Worked at a lumber yard, just a good old country boy. He loved to teach. I loved to listen. He would teach. I'd read the morning paper and listen to what he had to say. When I graduated his class, I had top grades, even though I'd hardly ever studied the way they they tell you to study. I just I just loved history, so I just sucked it in. But I remember him saying, Troy, there's nothing that you can't accomplish. There's something special about your ability to be able to overcome and conquer some of the strangest obstacles I've ever seen anybody have to overcome. See, when we have people that see us, when we have people that trust us, when we have people that that are willing to give us that inspiration, the sky's the limit. I had to learn to listen, and it's something that I still struggle with, just like everybody. But I did learn early on that even when I wasn't listening, I didn't need to interrupt. See, when you interrupt, it's a sign of distrust. It's a strong statement that you just don't really value that person. I learned this while I was still in high school. There were some teachers that were just more mixed up than I was, and I did not listen to them, and I was disrespectful to them. I learned that is not the wisest thing to do. Joel says this. He says, When leaders understand that interrupting others show a lack of trust, the notion of interruption gains significance. The question he asked next is, would your team rate you as a good listener or a poor listener? See, there's a couple of things that can help us, really three things. Number one is, don't say, I understand how you feel, but. See, I learned at about 22 years old that the word but negates everything that you just said. See, when you start to become a a linguistic studier and you start to, to speak publicly and you start to study what other oracles do and and what writing, what they call wordsmiths do, you start to understand things. And and I learned that every time I said, but, I was either being disrespectful to the other person or I just negated everything that I said with my own sentence. So you never say, but. See, most people won't feel that you understand, especially if you discount their thinking and immediately move in a different direction. The second thing that we learn is instead summarize what you just heard. A lot of times I'll say, okay, this is what I think you just said. Let me, let, me, let me see if this is right. See, if you speak it back to them, they're able to say right then, oh, no, that's not what I meant. Then you can listen and say, okay, is this what you meant? Okay, I agree with you in what you're saying then, or I disagree still, but, but let's keep going. The third thing is if you go in a different direction, articulate why. 
See, always explain your logic when differing with your team. I do this a lot with my 25-year-old son. He, he took a path in life and said, I don't believe in God. I, I thank God. I think anybody can believe anything they want and all that stuff you taught me growing up. I'm just not going to accept that in my value system. Okay? You have that right. So when we discuss things, there's a lot of times that we're discussing issues from diabolically different world views, period. Obviously, we can get into some interesting conversations. But I've learned to be respectful of where he's coming from, even if I disagree. And I'll say things back to him to, to summarize what he was saying. And then if I go in a different direction, I'll say, okay, but i, I got to take this in this direction because I, I just flat don't believe the way you believe. So you got to listen with a critical ear. Not a negative ear, a critical ear. If you study critical thinking, you understand what I'm talking about here. Joel tells a story that I think drives this home. He said, I've interviewed hundreds of people in my 30 years plus in business, and I've seen almost every situation imaginable. However, over lunch with Gene, who was being interviewed for a senior leadership position at Hershen Family Entertainment, I saw something new. Our lunch was going very well. He, is, he was working for a larger competitor, and he clearly knew his field of expertise. Not only that, but he seemed to like our direction, our growth strategy, and our culture. As we talked, however, I just couldn't understand why Gene was interested in joining HFE. He already had a great job. His pay was phenomenal. Joining us would probably require a pay cut and moving his family. Gene, you don't need to sell me any more on your capabilities, I said. It's clear that you have the skills and the drive that we need, but why do you want to leave the company you're with? He looked at me and tears welled up in his eyes. With his voice quivering, he said, They cut one-third of my team in a mass layoff. After a long pause, he continued slowly, and they didn't even ask my opinion. They didn't trust me enough to ask me. And then he was silent, silent. He could no longer speak without crying. Gene's leaders lost his trust because they made a, a major decision without his input. He was willing to leave his company because of a lack of trust. See, one of the best ways a leader can demonstrate trust and respect is to listen to and involve team members in the decisions that affect them. I want to stop for a second. Obviously, Joel's going to be talking about Saturn next, but I want to take it a step further. See, I know our listening audience doesn't really care about Saturn. They care about their home business. They care about their network marketing company, about their field. And something that I've, that I've learned is that when leaders leave a company, they don't leave it because of the company, they leave it because of a breakdown of communication, a breakdown, if you will, of trust. People that they thought valued their opinion, people that they thought they could believe in forever because they would, they would make them a part 
of the decision-making process fell short, made decisions, and did not ask them whether to change in the compensation plan, a change in a product formula, leaving something out of a product formula. doesn't matter. Does it happen this way all the time? No, just sometimes ego gets in the way. But the majority of the time, it's a breakdown in trust. And it's sad. And it doesn't need to happen. But too many times, we as leaders stop listening. We as leaders stop thinking about other people and we only think about us or we only think about the bottom line without thinking about what our actions might do to kill the bottom line. Joel shares something here that I think we need to listen to. He says, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to involving others in the decisions that affect them. Long before I met Gene, I saw this principle play out on the front lines working in the auto industry. At Saturn, for instance, who stated core values included trust and respect, there was a a tremendous relationship between the UAW union workers and the plant, which were always run by non-union management. However, when I worked on the truck plant, the GM truck plant, it was different. He says, there was a line between the union and senior workers. The union relationship with management was advertational. Advent, you know what I'm saying. This animosity had built up over decades and had passed from generation to generation. All the management had to wear ties and white shirts on the plant floor while the UAW workers wore jeans and overalls. The UAW called us suits and had little desire to interact with management. One Saturday, after being short a few workers all week because they were sleeping or drinking or just taking time off for whatever reason, I was on the golf course. And imagine my surprise when a player assigned to our foursome was one of the UAW workers on my line. The same man who was out of work on long-term disability with a note from his doctor stating that he couldn't work because of his severe headaches. His headaches seemed to be okay as he joked around with his buddies on the first tee. When he saw me walk up, he scoffed and said, Talk to my union rep on Monday. I decided to take a different tea time. Since then, however, I wondered about the causes of that toxic work environment. See, at Saturn, everybody sat around, the UAW and the management team, and they worked together. See, it's interesting how the same company, different divisions, can get different results. Same thing runs true with leaders. Why can one leader get along with one guy and not the other? One of the God-given gifts that I have is the ability to negotiate. Because my goal is always to build trust from both sides and to find a decision that will work for everyone. It doesn't happen that way all the time, sadly. But I remember vividly once, at a very young age, I just stopped, got out of the bail bond, bounty hunting business, 
went to work for a mergers and acquisition firm. And one of my first duties was to deal with the electrical union of all unions because our truck driver who drove our feed truck had decided he wanted to be union and we'd made him work and he had to spend the night somewhere and he wanted additional money and yada, yada, yada. So he'd taken us up before the EEOC and, and the union and the union didn't even have anything to do with this. Matter of fact, it was it was the grain workers union that he and he wasn't even a member of it but somehow they were connected with the electrical people or something but anyway we're sitting at the table and he's there with his representative and the union's there and we're there and our attorney's there who is a great friend but dumb as a box of rocks when it comes to negotiation with unions and they were telling us what they were going to do and how they were going to do it and my boss had never dealt with union people to to him he didn't have a clue the fun thing was I'd grown up in the union. So I understood the mentality of union. And they were there to protect their own. They also tried to support other unions. So as I sat there and listened, I finally said, wait a second. I said, let me get this correct. This guy's not a member of any of your unions, right? That is correct. I said, okay, and he's our employee, right? Yeah. And your people that actually work on our our floor creating the grains and the feeds that we sell, we, you've never had a complaint with them, right? Well, that is correct. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I said, first of all, you guys don't have the right to represent him because he's not your member. And if he's going to become a member as a truck driver, then he's going to go down the street and he's going to join the local in the Teamsters. And at that time, I'll be talking to the Teamster local president, which is, Danny and, and my dad and him are friends, and, and matter of fact, I just catered a big event for him with my father-in-law not too long ago, so I think I'll deal with him instead of you guys because this guy's wasting your time. He's not one of your people, and he's not going to join because we're not going to put him on the floor. All of a sudden, it dawned on them that we were not anti-union. We just wanted to deal with the right union representative if our driver was going to be union. Long story short, we shook hands, and they were happy, and I was happy, and the lazy guy that really didn't want to work half the time anyway quit and went and found a job that was more suitable for his personality. We built trust with the union, which represented the majority of our employees, and they understood that they had somebody in management that respected their position, even though sometimes I might not agree with it. See, when you show people trust and respect, it becomes the, the, the most powerful tool in negotiation, in persuasion, in building. Joel writes, dealing with people should, involve, should be in, de- deciding that people should be involved in the decisions that affect them is the easy part. What is harder is making sure the right people are involved. He uses an acronym called RACI, R-A-C-I. He said, start with identifying who is responsible. That's where the R comes in for the decision. After you figure out who's responsible, now you have to find out who's going to approve 
the decision that is made. That's the A. But before the decision becomes final, it's necessary to consult the people who will be directly affected by the decision. And finally, the organization must find the best way to inform the rest of the team. I thought that was beautiful. See, when we when we engage with everyone in every spectrum, from the grassroots level to the chairman of the board, you end up with a straightforward model that everyone can understand. See, I thought this just kicked butt. The problem is, as I see it, is that most companies, through their bureaucracy and everything else, they talk about efficiency all the time, which is usually bottom-line driven because it's profit-driven, but they never talk about the effectiveness. And see, I think that's the key. And when we use this racy formula, not only are we efficient because we'll end up cutting costs, we'll end up driving home what we need to do, but we also become very effective because the team gets excited because they were part of the decision process. Some companies, Amway is a a prime example. Amway has what we call the the IBO board. They actually have independent distributors that they consult before they make any decision. Other companies have leadership-driven, what do you call it, teams that alternate and fluctuate, and that's what they do. You need to use it, but you need to really listen to what they're saying. And you don't just put people there because they have a rank advancement. You put them there because they actually know what they're talking about. In closing today, I want to share one last story about something that I thought was right. I thought this was beautiful. He says, Nelson Schwab is the current chairman of HFE. He said, taking over when I became CEO in 2003. He said, our our actual corporate papers require a non-executive board chairman and the CEO to be two different people. He's a tremendous leader. Nelson is a leader who understands the value of trust. As smart and capable as he is, he lets me make the decisions I'm responsible for. When we talk, he gives me his input, but he always makes it clear that it's my decision. On the other hand, I have so much respect for Nelson's expertise and wisdom that I'd be ill-advised to ignore them. So what happened? Well, one day, Joel and the CFO got an idea. Maybe we should split the company apart. And one side of the company will be very conservative, almost debt-free. The other side will take on some debt and leverage and buy the properties. So what did he do? He went to Nelson. Nelson listened, and then he said, Once you come to your recommendations, let's talk before the board meeting. Your recommendations, he said. What a free feeling. He said, here's what happened. We went through and saw all the scenarios. We saw the the good side and the bad side. I talked to stockholders and shared with them the worst-case scenario, talked with two attorneys or two law firms, and they couldn't even come to an agreement about the negative tax issues. He said, I found two key points in making trust-filled decisions after working with Nelson, Jack, and Peter. Number one, let others make the decisions for which they are responsible. A leader must choose carefully when he or she is going to step in and get involved. And number two, avoid overriding decisions that have been made. 
clearly if the downside of a potential error is very expensive or puts the organization at risk, you have to step in. But outside of that, let them do what they need to do. And the reason being is because trust is the key in any healthy relationship, whether it's home or business. If we trust others or we want to trust others more, we will listen well, involve our teams, and trust them to make the decision that will work the best. Folks, it's all about trust. Tomorrow, principle number six, unselfishness, thinking of ourselves less. You're going to love this one. Live life like it's an epic adventure. Remember this. If you're in network marketing, act like it. Be right back here tomorrow morning on RealMentorsRadio.com.